Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Are you okay? Well, goodness, I know you. this is uh, some time ago, but we actually recorded this on Easter Sunday, would you believe? So some time has uh, occurred in between the recording of and the playing of, but uh, I'm just getting a few episodes upfront and organised. I like to be efficient. Um, so that's what's happening here. And it's fair to say that I have not behaved myself. So I say to the children, you know, you can't have your Easter eggs until Easter Sunday after lunch. I had to wait when I was a child. You have to do the same. And uh, what they don't know is that my box of chocolates, I didn't get an Easter egg. So don't worry, don't cry. I had a box of chocolates. My box of chocolates, I raided. I'm going to have to whisper this. I raided it yesterday because I just I couldn't resist it. I just needed the chocolate. And so then once they were in bed, I was having to sort of try and reform the wrappers around air. So it looks like the chocolates are still intact, which was quite a good plan at the time. Obviously, then when I'm going to eat them later on, they kind of seem quite light, even lighter than a Malteser, would you believe? And also, I'm then going to have to act out the eating of chocolate. So I think basically the whole thing has backfired on me, but it'll it'll teach me a lesson if nothing else. Uh, so there we go. That's what's happening here. But how are you doing? Um, are you all OK? Are you reading lots? I hope you are. And if you're not, well, I've got some great books to talk to you about today. So get ready to get your orders into your bookshops, your libraries, your apps, your everything. because There's some good books coming up. Um, there's four books today. I am trying to reduce the quantity of books that I review just so you're not having to spend a fortune every week and I'm not having to completely give up on sleep altogether. So that's that's all good. But four absolute wowzers today. So we've got Tony Kent, who's written the book Killer Intent. Uh, we've got Gillian McAllister's new book called That Night. Um, we've got Sebastian Falk's book, which is going back in time, but I really wanted to read it. Sorry, that's not the name of the book. The name of the book is A Week in December. Uh, it's one that's been published for some time, um, but I just, it came up on the library app and I thought, yes, I'm going to listen to that. And then finally, um, Katie Allen's new book, Everything Happens for a Reason. 
Um, gosh, that's that's a book with a story to tell. So let's get on now. So Tony Kent is going to join us, which is very exciting. Um, this book, Killer Intent, is the first in the series. Now, you may remember that I reviewed Power Play recently, which I loved. Well, this is actually the first book in that series. So I'm just being a radical. I'm just reading it in the complete wrong order. But to be honest, it's fine because it doesn't stop me enjoying it. And actually, I'm learning more and more about the characters. So it's fine. Let me be a radical. I don't care. So Killer Intent, the blurb is this. When an attempted assassination sparks a chain reaction of explosive events across London, Britain's elite security forces seem powerless to stop the chaos threatening to overwhelm the government. As the dark and deadly conspiracy unfolds, three strangers find their fates entwined. Joe Dempsey, a deadly military intelligence officer, Sarah Truman, a CNN reporter determined to get her headline, and Michael Devlin, a Belfast-born criminal barrister with a secret past. As the circle of those they can trust grows ever smaller, Dempsey, Devlin and Truman are forced to work in the shadows, caught in a life-or-death race against the clock, before the terrible plot can consume them all. Um, now, I know recently I've been doing first sentences and I failed to do that last week, didn't I? Which is shameful. But we're going to get back onto the first sentence now. So here's the first sentence for Killer Intent. Joshua felt a rush of adrenaline as he looked down into the square. I mean, actually, this this book, this first chapter is so good. It's only one and a bit pages, but I wish um, I could just sit here and read it to you because it, it does get you hooked. It's a great combination of sort of um, a legal thriller, a sort of it's not a spy thriller, but it's that sort of it's got that sort of pace and, di and direction um, and the political thriller as well. It's just it's a good it's a good book. It's a quite a long read it's over 500 pages so it does take you time to to read through all of that and I think um it's obvious well it was to me who Tony Kent's heroes are as I was reading the book I mean he's got um David Baldacci, Robert Ludlam, Lee Child as some of his favourites. And I think that's absolutely right. And I'd say those are like the main ingredients, if you can say. And then with a little bit of John Grisham and Frederick Forsyth added in. But I'd say those three authors, if you like those authors, then I think you'll really like uh, this book and, and this series. Um, I think it's got a lot to commend it. Some Some good twists and turns if we call them that or reveals it's just it's a very interesting story and I enjoyed it I'm also good because I did listen to some of this on audiobook as well and I think it's narrated brilliantly um, so enough of me waffling on as always let's talk to Tony now so Tony thank you so much for joining me today I really appreciate it thanks for having me Philippa it's very nice to uh to be doing this on a lovely Easter Sunday Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Well, I mean, these all three books. We're we're talking about Killer Intent today, but I've I've read all three. Let's let's focus on Killer Intent. So, even the first chapter had me completely gripped. It's a short first chapter, but straight away I was in, I was hooked, and uh, there was no way I was going to put the book down. Presumably, that that was a deliberate ploy of yours. You know, the first that that, that is something that I. That I like try to do in my books. I, I think I did it in uh, in Mark for Death. I really went for it in Power Play. My my fourth book that will be coming out uh, at the end of the year. I did it in that as well. Uh, I have to be honest. Killer Intent was was actually much less intentional um, because 
as I mean, it was my first book and it took me such a long time to write it and just sort of such a long time to finish it because I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And I think uh, that was always kind of the beginning, but it was never really intentional. And I think I made it quite a lot shorter. I think, first of all, the first three chapters were one chapter and it kept jumping perspective. Right. Then when I met my publishers, they explained to me what point of view was because <laughs> I had never realised what that was. And I hadn't, um, I hadn't really paid attention to how that works in books until they pointed it out. <laughs> and once they pointed it out, it made so much sense and made things so much easier. But I think... I think it's my natural tendency to write things in a punchy way. Yeah. And I like short chapters. I don't religiously stick to them. Some of my chapters are much longer than others, but generally I'll write quite short chapters. Not generally James Patterson short, but, uh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, pretty short. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, I think it, it was very intentional in two, three and four. It was very intentional in Mark for Death, very intentional in Power Play, very intentional in what whatever my publishers are going to call book four. Um, I'm never allowed to have any say in this, by the way. My 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 ideas for book titles are rubbish. Well, I know so, some um, some people have said Killer Intent, Tony Kent. You know, was was that a, a deliberate play on the name? Well, it, I don't think it was, and Tony Kent's not even my name. <laughs> they oh my with, goodness! They came up with Killer Intent before I came up with Tony Kent. And um, my, my name is Tony Wyatt. I'm a, a but WY is not where you want to be in a system that is alphabetized. <laughs> uh, yes. I also, my, my, my day job, and, and some people listening to this will already know, my day job is, um, is pretty intense. And so if you Google Tony Wyatt, you find quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of things that I've been involved in, cases I've been involved in and trials. And so we decided that ultimately I would basically be if we were to stick with Tony Wyatt, not only would I be down by your foot in Waterstones, yeah. I would also be competing with myself on Google searches. Um, so it made cool. sense to go for a new name. But now if you if you if you Google Tony Wyatt's author, Tony Kent comes up anyway. So that didn't work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, any attempt of disguising didn't work. But uh, but so I make no I, I make no effort whatsoever to uh, to pretend that I'm not one or the other. But at the same time, it's uh, it, it's yeah. We started where we started, and we'll stick to it. So yeah. Yes. Plus, I get to call myself Kent and saying Clark Kent and all that business. So <laughs> do you do you ever have problems remembering who you are? Because my work name, I use my maiden name for work, and sometimes when I pick up the phone or I'm signing a letter, I just have to think, who am I today? <laughs> Which yeah. name do you have that? I have that um, quite often if I've been to a festival. If I go to a festival, I'll spend a lot of time signing things. And then a day later, I'll be in the Old Bailey and I'll be in the cells and you have to sign in. And I'll sign in and, and I'll be signing in as somebody else. And they've got my ID that says Tony Wyatt and for some reason, some guy called Tony Kent with a completely different signature would have signed in. So, yeah, it does happen. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, when I first went to Harrogate, I was, uh, I was on the train with my wife and she said, have you got a signature, by the way? And I said, well, of course I've got a signature. I'm 39 years old. I'm a grown man. Of course I've got a signature. Uh, to, to which she then pointed out, no, I don't mean that. I mean, has Tony Kent got a signature? Indeed. So we had to really frantically work out what Tony Kent's signature was on the train to Harrogate. And since then, I've had to stick to it. It's very and weird. Is it quite similar to Tony? Nothing what? at all. OK. Really. It's, fl it, it's quite flourishy. Um, uh, big name dropping time. I met Ian Rankin um, a, a bit before Harrogate. We had the same publicist wow. and he gave me cer certain advice. And what one of the bits of advice was 
have a signature that's a bit flourishy, um, <laughs> have a big flourish at the beginning, a big flourish at the end, and make the middle a squiggle. <laughs> now I've, I've and just if Ian ever listens to this, Ian, I, I've seen your signature and it's nothing like that. So <laughs> I'm not sure where that advice is coming from. <laughs> Well, it sounded good at the time. Anyway, yeah. we'll take it with good intention. Now, you quickly established these three characters. We've got um, Joe Dempsey, military intelligence officer, Sarah Truman, the CNN reporter, and Michael Devlin, the criminal uh, barrister. I love this. It's such a fresh, unusual combination of, of the three. Did they all come to you sort of side by side or did it emerge over time? Um, it, it, I Sarah emerged over time a bit more than the first two. I wanted a good female protagonist who was, you know, I'm, I'm, I, in her own way, is a match for the guys. In certain other mm. ways, she's not. I mean, they're all they've all got their own strengths. Mm. Um, you know, De Devlin is no match for Dempsey physically, and you know, De 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 Devlin's got certain skills that Dempsey would love to have. And and then Sarah is again. They all bring something to the to the table. But I wanted to have a strong female protagonist, and it took a bit longer to work her out actually and, and get her get her going to where I wanted her to be you know I wanted her to be to be fiery and to, and, you know, to fight back and ambitious etc but she developed a lot as we were writing I think the first I think the other two didn't develop very much at all apart from there was a big change in Dempsey after after my first draft there was something missing from him and I couldn't really work out what it was and then it dawned on me what it was what it was was I, I love the dichotomy of a man who is steeped in violence and it's what he does he's, he was a mm. he was a killer rather you know, rather than a soldier he was a killer he was you know, he's james bond to a certain extent mm. but he hates it uh and i love the idea of this of this character who was basically indoctrinated as a boy if he'd been a, if, he, if he'd been an islamic terrorist uh you would say that he'd been indoctrinated well he was the british he was a british soldier who was every single bit as indoctrinated as, as an islamic terrorist he was yeah. 18 years old and they took him and they and they molded him and they manipulated him and they to us to an extent brainwashed him into this sort of killing machine that he was and as we find out over the course of the book so this was always the plan by the time i'd really finished killer intent it's always the plan to discover this is he then realizes the, the what they've made of him and he's realizing that he's got a he's killed a lot of people and, and many of them deserved it and he now realizes that many of them didn't Mm. He believed if he was sent, then the due diligence had been done and that the person there, he was the final solution to this, to, yeah. to this person. And he then discovers that he wasn't. He then discovers that actually he was a he was a sort of a scalpel. He was a killer, but he wasn't necessarily doing it for justified reasons. And of course, we have Joshua is the other side of that coin is the bad guy or the, the physical bad guy in killer mm. intent. And without going you know, too much into giving away plot details, it's really hard not to actually because it, yeah, I so long ago. Don't, I assume don't. everyone's read it, but of course they haven't. <laughs> Joshua is kind of the other side of the coin. Joshua is a man who kills for money, mm. and Dempsey looks upon that as being something that's terrible, but actually realizes that he wasn't killing for any better reason than that. So yes, yeah, so Dempsey, the core of Dempsey was there from the very very beginning, uh, but then that that thing was missing, I think, until my final draft. And in the final draft, I just got this thing of this is a man who he's as good as anyone on the planet at this one thing. And he hates being good at that one thing. But at the same time, he's got so much badness to make up for that he's got to keep doing that one thing. He can't yes. walk away from that world because no one else does it as well as him. So 
I enjoy, I, I really like that about him and that, that did grow. I think it was always there at the back of my mind, but I don't think I was quite so explicit about it. And I've really enjoyed watching that grow across the books and into the fourth book now that I'm writing, which is very, very Dempsey heavy. The, third, the fourth book is pretty much a Dempsey book. Well, it is a Dempsey book, Devlin's not in it. Um, in the same way as Dempsey wasn't in the second one. Mm. Michael Devlin, uh, he kind of just jumped up fully formed. Right. I would say there is, I, I would love to be Joe Dempsey, as, as any man would. I'm a lot more Michael Devlin than I am Joe <laughs> Dempsey. Now, Michael Devlin is, is an idealised version of myself in the sense that he's much better at his job, he's much better looking. I think we're about the same height, but uh, that's just, <laughs> all, all, all heroes in books are 6'2", aren't they? So we're about the same, we're, we're the same height. Um, but other than that, he's the idealised version of me. Um, but there is a lot more overlap. There's a lot more, but there will be. I'm, you know, I'm from an Irish family. He's actually from Ireland. I'm not. I'm, but if you're from an Irish family in London, the second the door closes at home, you're you're basically in Ireland. So, yeah. although Irish sort of people who were born in Ireland don't quite like, they're not quite fond. They're not very very fond of of those of us who regard ourselves as as being really very Irish, despite the way we speak. The problem is, it's not our fault. <laughs> we're raised <laughs> that way. So I've got the same kind of background to him. I came from a sort of, of a rough council estate. I don't, he comes from a family of villains. I came from a family of builders, which is not quite the same thing, but mm. I didn't come from a barrister's background the way he didn't. I was exposed to the same new world that he was exposed to. And so he, he came out a bit more fully formed because in many ways he was very like me, better, much better, but very like me uh, and and so, and so that's kind of grown as well. And what's interesting is, as I've written him and Sarah in the future books, because, you know, I think it's it's that there is a, a chemistry there in, in the first book and that chemistry goes somewhere in the later books. Sarah has developed enormously and is very, very similar now to my wife, which oh, is really? very, very interesting. <laughs> but the most interesting part of it is... Uh, I think when I say she's similar to my wife, their home life is similar. They're the way the way they live and, and the way they interact, very, very similar to how I, I live and interact with Victoria. But what's very interesting, I always think, is I wrote Sarah before I ever met Victoria. And actually, oh. she is the physical description of her. They have the same everything. They're the same height, the same build, the same strained green eyes. The wow. Same and she existed long before I met Victoria, which I think is interesting. And yeah. therefore probably inevitable that she would gradually morph into her <laughs> yes my goodness that's incredible did you know when you were writing book one that if you could choose it would be a series was that very much in in your mind at that time I wanted to write a Joe Dempsey series mm. it was never a Michael Devlin series Michael Devlin was never going to appear in another book um I have a friend who was working previously for Random House and when I'd finished Killer Intense, I, I was mulling over what, what I should write next. And he said, well, you've got to write the next one of that lawyer, haven't you? And I said, well, no, I'm, I want to write a book about the, the intelligence agent. I, I want them. This is the Dempsey series. Yeah. And he said, trust me, this is not the Dempsey series. This is yeah. the Devlin and Dempsey if you want, but it's a Devlin series. And so I kind of listened to that and then got going on. Had a, a, some, a story came back to me from many years ago that, that, that sparked Mark for Death. And so I started writing Mark for Death. And interestingly, Dempsey didn't even show up until, I think there's a phone call that Dempsey <laughs> shows up and, and uh, he's at the end of a phone in one chapter. And 
that and that was it so so neil the guy from random house was absolutely right it was it's very much in my mind the devlin dempsey series and i think that with power play dempsey becomes much much more to the mm. fore and you get to know him much better and i think in that he's kind of claimed the claim the series back or certainly claimed his half of the series back but uh i do realize now when i go back and read killer intent although De devlin and dempsey are in it 50 50 it's michael's story it is you know, Dempsey's doing his job, and yes, there's a bit of a personal grudge going on there as well. But in reality, it's Michael's series. Michael is you know, Michael's going home, and Michael's going back to the life that he left behind. And when I read it that way, I realise that I did write a book that that was very much the beginning of the Devlin series without intending to. Yes, I'm very interested in how you manage the twists and turns in Killer Intent and in the subsequent books. Are those sort of do you have to deliberately? Um, put them in the story as you go along at equal proportions or is that just that just comes from your storytelling I think it's the latter really I mean a lot of the twists I don't know are coming uh, <laughs> until they happen and I'll always have two or three um I, don't, I, I think they're, they're more there's a couple of twists I guess but mainly I, I look at them more as sort of reveals uh the moment that you, yeah. you're going to see stuff that's that you kind of that hopefully you didn't guess but if you did, if you did guess it, there's a reason you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's littered throughout there. I'm not a big fan of huge twists. I'm not a big fan of twists when they are, when when they come out of nowhere, and and then you look back, and if you read it again, knowing it's going to come, you still don't see any Easter Absolutely. eggs or, or placement for them. Mm -hmm. um, so, because of the way I write, I mean, I, I don't. I'm not going to say I don't plan because that would be a lie. I'll, I'll explain the way I do it, which I think I'm not a planner or a pantser. You know, see to the pants one that they that they use. Yeah, I'm somewhere in between in the sense that I, I have a list of of plots. I have a long it's in here somewhere. There's um, a book with with just one line plots, and it's just a one liner, maybe two lines, and next to it will be the character, so whose book it is. So Mark for Death, Devlin's book, Power Play, Devlin Dempsey, book four. I'll meet this Dempsey, book five will be Devlin and Dempsey again, 50-50. So I know who the lead is. Mm. And I know the sort of vague idea of the plot, uh, just as a one-liner. What I do is I choose it. I'll choose that that's the next book. And then I'll wander around going about my life for two or three months, just thinking about it. A lot, I do a lot of thinking in the shower, actually. But I'll wander around thinking about it. And then I'll sit down having thought through it. And I would have thought the major beats and I know the major scenes I have an idea of how it's going to end and then I'll start writing so I'm not writing off the seat of my pants but I'm not planning I don't have a single thing written down I don't uh you know there's no post-it notes there's none of that yeah and I'll I will write a um a book bible as I go so I've got my my series bible which is growing as we speak mm. um I haven't really really got stuck into it on this book but I've got my series Bible and that series Bible always then has, which applies to all of them. And then there's another section on that, which becomes the book specific Bible. Yeah. And so that grows as I'm writing. And that sort of, that, that just keeps me, it keeps me on top of who's in the book and who's and where we've been. And even down to distances between places, between locations and that kind of a thing. So that in, in that, to that extent, I, that's not so much planning as just keeping track. But um, but in terms of the twists and the turns, yeah, they take me by surprise. I've got to be honest. I, I'll always have a one or two in my head. I always have one. Or, there's a big one in the current book that uh, I hope is a very is again it's a reveal. 
no, I, I, those who I've not finished it. I've not quite finished it. I'm very near the end. I've had it. I, I like certain people to read it as I go, rather than reading it at the end just to make sure that I'm still on track. Yeah. So far, none of them have worked out this reveal, mm. which I'm really happy for because it. I mean, it's it's absolutely a completely um completely signposted. It's completely series consistent. When you go, and if you see it, you'll then go back and you pick up Killer Intent. Yeah. Frankly, what you'll do is you'll pick up Killer Intent and check out someone's surname. And then suddenly you will oh. realize that you could have known this all along. Wow. Um, but uh, but yeah, so, so th those sort of things, the big thing like that, and the, the, re the reveal of the, of the secondary bad guy in Killer Intent, the, the one that sort of is, is a personal thing for Dempsey, so not Joshua, but the other one, I can't say for obvious reasons. Mm. That, was a, that was always planned. Um, so yeah, there's always something planned, but, uh, but, the, but the, the most, most of them just, they surprise me as much as they surprise you when they sort of jump out. I'm really interested in that because the level of preparation and comparing it to your main job as you know, highly successful criminal barrister, presumably for that, that work your preparation and planning has to be incredible you know trying to foresee every possible question that could come up in court and every route you might take the case whereas writing is is freer and can you cope with with that change you're not just someone who has to plan and prepare I'll be honest I'm, I'm kind of like that in court as well oh. <laughs> I, um... I take it all back <laughs> I, I've, I've, I was born very, very lucky with a very good memory. And I think if you're born with a good memory, you know, it's, nothing, it's not boasting because it's not something I've succeeded in. It just happened. I was born that way. If you're born with a very good memory, I think you have a huge advantage in certainly the things that I've chosen to do. Mm -hmm. So I have a huge. So it's easy for me to write without a note because I, I can remember everything. I can remember if you give me a thousand page pages of evidence i will i will be able to tell you what's in them without having to really refer to them Gosh. overly and so that gives me a massive advantage when i'm cross-examining because if i'm cross-examining and, and it goes off down a particular route I, I can i can think a couple of steps ahead because i know where that route's going because i know the evidence i don't need mm -hmm. to look the evidence up uh, i mean don't get me wrong i will i will look it up to make sure i'm right but i have very rarely been wrong um in, in the 20 years i've been doing it for that reason so uh, I think the kind of there are there, there are different kinds of barristers as there, as there are different kinds of writers, and I think I'm exactly the same kind of barrister as, as I am a writer, which is I like to be a bit entertaining in court uh, if, if I can. Hmm. The reason for that is this: I mean, look at what I write, and people buy them. Look at what Steve Kavanagh writes; people buy it. Look at what John Grissom writes, and yeah, loads of people buy it. People are genetically predisposed or societally predisposed to enjoy courtroom drama. And yet no one wants to go to court for real because it's so boring. Mm. And I make a point of trying to make it not boring. So I'll you know, inject a bit of drama into things, make it a bit dramatic, even in places where it doesn't need to be. And it makes a difference. You know, people, people pay attention because of it. And if it's a 50-50, it will go my way because I've entertained them. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not saying I'm I'm there telling jokes though sometimes, uh, but it's not just it's not a question of playing the clown, but it's a question of trying to keep it a little bit. I once had a judge stop me in the middle of a cross examination and say, "Mr. Wyatt, this is not a Hollywood movie." 
um, which I think probably sums up <laughs> the way in which I try to do it. So it might raise some eyebrows sometimes. And I think that's the thing. It's I bring that to my books. I um, I I trust in myself that I know where I'm going, even if I don't quite. It's almost like doing a it's almost like doing a physics equation without knowing the maths. You know, you kind you, you kind of know where you're going with this, but you can't work out why or how. But to do that, you need a certain level of confidence yes. to sort of yeah. wing it while the information then comes to you. And, and that yeah. seems, I'm not saying you're winging it at work, but you have a confidence that enables you to tackle things head on and, yeah. Yeah. and then have the facts to, to back it up, which is, which is really interesting. So, I mean... Well, see, I think that comes from the thinking time. So right. the same as with a trial, I'll, I will be thinking about that trial. I won't be writing about it. I won't be making notes. I won't, I won't be scripting a cross-examination, but I will be thinking about it. And I'll be thinking the directions it can go. And I think that's the same with the book. I think that's the way I, I think those two or three months that I need to think. The book that I'm currently writing, I didn't have those two or three months because the book I'm currently writing was originally about a pandemic. And I started it oh. in December, 2019. Uh, was when I started it and I was a third of the way in wow and I had to scrap it because I was a third of the way in by March and suddenly we went to lockdown mm. and I caught Covid you can probably still hear me breathing quite heavily on the back of it I've still not got my breath fully you've had it twice haven't you I have and it really it's it's really done a number on my lungs so I'm currently in the process of trying to get fit again to be able to breathe properly because it's really bugging me I can hear it even as we're speaking um but the, um, yeah, so, so I had to scrap it and I'd done my three months. It's September, it had been September, I chose the pandemic book. I thought about it, I started writing in December. Come March, I had to scrap it and I had to just start again. And initially we were, we were releasing in July this year. So I had to start again and, and I started without thinking. And it made such a difference to the speed with, 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 I could, with which I could write. And I'm really happy with the book but I think I'm really happy with it because in September I had to stop writing it because I started a murder trial. Murder trial lasted seven weeks. And by the end of the murder trial, I went back and pretty much scrapped it again and wrote the same book this time, wow. but I had had those seven weeks of the murder trial thinking about it. Yes. Yeah. And so I know I need that. I, I absolutely need that. And I think that it's exactly the same with court. I think I just need, I, I have thinking time. I don't want to get political about it, but certainly in the UK at this point, the legal system seems to be somewhat floundering, with the, particularly with the delays um, from the pandemic and, and all sorts of other things. Is there a temptation to take, um, to take that out in the stories or to try and raise, raise people's awareness in the stories? Do you know, there's not. And the reason there's not is that for me, writing is escapism as well. Mm. I'll never give up my day job. Um, yeah, if I become as successful as someone like Ian Rankin or one of those guys, then I might have to give up some of the day job. Mm. But I'll never give it up. I love that job. But this is escapism from it for me. Well, it's why I don't write dark stuff. I mean, I know Mark for Death has a few little dark bits in it, but, yeah. but given what I do for a living, that's not dark. <laughs> um, and so I look at what some what some people write, where it's kind of very dark all the time. And I don't want that. I, I want to have a bit of escapism in my life. You know, I, I deal in the dark for real. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I don't really want to write about it to the extent that those who don't deal with it do. Um, but for the same reason, I don't really want to bring in the real life. If I were to bring that in, it would just depress people. 
there is, I mean, don't get me wrong, I do, there are elements of what I do that I would like to bring in. For example, my next book is going to be set in the International Criminal Court, and it will have Michael Devlin um, defending someone. Ah. And the man he's defending for terrible crimes will be innocent. Uh, no question he'll be innocent. He will also be a complete and utter bastard. I want for the I want because I'm always asked how do you defend the guilty or how do you defend these horrible people, and I really think it's a great opportunity for me to talk about through Michael to talk about look this man is a piece of shit, mm. this man is the lowest of the low, but he didn't do this, and you cannot no, just because he deserves punishment for something you cannot yeah. punish him for this, and I really really I'm, I'm going to enjoy that, and that will be the first time I've got political or philosophical or jurisprudential I think is the right word for it and and I'm looking forward to doing that but in terms of the actual practical day-to-day stuff I think it would destroy the magic if people knew just how common it is to turn up for a trial knowing that the complainant or the guy's guilty the victim knowing that the complainant and the witnesses and the defendant and the lawyers and everyone have been dragged to court all believing they're about to get their day in court after however long. If people knew how often that then results in them saying, oh no, sorry, there's no courts available for you, go home, at 4.30 in the evening. And if people knew how often that's what happens and they knew it was going to happen, they knew there would be no courts available, they dragged you all there Mm. to pick a box. If people knew how common that kind of behaviour was, they would not be entertained by what I write. They would just be incredibly frustrated and they yes. would, yeah, it, it, it just yeah. couldn't, it, it, and, and I wouldn't be able to make it nice. Basically, I think the secret barrister is doing a fantastic job yes. of revealing yes. all this to the world. <laughs> and he or she is, you know, is welcome to it because they deal with their frustration far more articulately than I could. I do get quite a lot of media work now. I do get quite a lot of uh, I've got a column in a in a magazine. We're talking about this kind of thing, so I do have outlets for it. I guest edited a show on Radio Five Live. I've been on various radio shows talking about it, and there'll be a lot more of that as it goes on. So I do have an outlet. I, do, I mean, I have a platform that other barristers don't have. I've got a very, very, very limited level of 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 being well known. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's extremely limited, but it's more so than other barristers, and therefore it does give me a little bit of a platform. So I do have to speak about it and I will speak about it, but I won't write about it. Yeah, keep them separate. I mean, there's even the secret magistrate now as well. Yes, <laughs> yeah. don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> oh, go on. <laughs> no, my opinions on, my opinions on magistrates are... Uh, uh, I'm not not for not for genteel ears. <laughs> okay, so we'll we'll definitely move on then. <laughs> I, I, I'm just interested. How did you get that first break? Then you you've taken some time to write the first book, um, and you've worked on it and revised it. But how did you get the, the big break into getting it published? I went through the same hardship that everyone does. Um, I went through this. It was a little bit different for me because I was, you know, I was running a successful career um, Mm. and I was running a successful law practice and a law firm, in fact, and it it was, it took up a lot of my time. So I didn't have a huge amount of time to, to be traipsing around and sending out all the submissions, Mm. but I sent a few, I must've sent 10 um, and they were all refused. Uh, Pardon me, every one of them came back refused. It's just what you expect, I guess. I mean, it's what happens. 
for those who are listening to this, I mean, people should be aware. Most of those refusals are not when I think I don't remember who the uh, the um, label was that the Beatles went to see in the sixties, but somebody said, "Yeah, it's the uh, guitar bands are over. Guitar <laughs> bands are through. It's a flash in the pan," and didn't sign them. That's crazy stupidity. Um, J.K. Rowling not being published by the twelve or thirteen people who refused her—that's not stupidity. Mm. They didn't read the book. People need to understand that there are far, far too many books submitted for them to all be read. There's a limitation. There's only so many hours in the day. So what publishers do in order to, um, in order to not because if they, if they send you back something saying sorry couldn't read it, you'll just send it again. So they send you something back that implies they've read it. The vast majority of rejection letters, and, I, and I'm sure all of J.K. Rowling's, because who the hell wouldn't wouldn't publish that? <laughs> all of them, I'm sure, were circumstances where it went into the slush pile, wasn't read, and they did they send out their stock letter. Uh, I'm not saying that that's true of me. Who knows? But I've received all the stock letters, and I'd given up. I actually had given up because I my wife was very keen on me pushing it because she knew the passion I had for it, and so she was she'd got me to. Um, she encouraged me to go to some book fairs. So I went, I went to some book fairs and there was one particular day, I was at a book fair in Houston. I sat down with a girl who was about 22. So she's just literally just out of university. And she was just obviously got a job recently at a, uh, at a publisher's. She wasn't in crime or thriller, she was in romance, but she was willing to talk to me because that's the person that I'd got the lottery ticket to talk to. And I sat and spoke to her for 25 minutes and moved and walked away feeling all chuffed that this girl had spoken to me, this child had given me some time. And then as I was walking away, I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was this, the epiphany was yesterday, I was in the Old Bailey and I was cross-examining probably the most notorious gangland figure in the country for a day. And like a battle of wills, proper out and out cross-examination. And a day later, I was being insanely grateful that a child had given me 25 minutes of their time. And I said then to Victoria, yeah, this is over. I can't do this. I require a certain level of ego for my job. Um, and to do my job, I've got to keep my ego on a certain level and this is not helping. I can't do it. Mm. So I stopped. And then a few days later, was it a few weeks later, I, this is going to sound grandiose. It's nothing to do with me. It's my father-in-law. Uh, my father-in-law was invited by Rolls-Royce to go to a driving event. They were trying to sell him a car. He was, he, I'm not the kind of person that Rolls-Royce tries to sell cars, tries to sell cars to, <laughs> but he is. And it involved racing around the Goodwood track. So he asked if I wanted to go with him. And I went down and I was racing Rolls-Royces for this day, just completely off the, off the they vicariously through somebody they cared about. <laughs> they, they, they let some vagrant in who couldn't afford a chair, they not the car. And um, and while we were there, I noticed it was all being run by a girl who was very similar to those girls that I'd seen at all of these fairs. And I thought, well, they're all of a type. You know, they're all in the same kind of industry. So I got chatting to her and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got loads of friends in publishing. Um, and she was quite keen to get involved in, in my father-in-law's industry. And he's quite well known in his industry. So I introduced him to him and that was all very nice. And, and she wanted to do some work with him. And a few days later, she reciprocated. She phoned me up and she said, I'm in a special forces club in Kensington. Are you free? And I said, well, yeah, I'm free. She goes, well, I've got a friend here to meet, uh, I'd like to introduce you to. 
So I went to meet this friend of hers who I was expecting to be one of the girls. Uh, and then maybe it was a sort of a personal way in. And it wasn't one of the girls. It was the guy that owned my publishers. It was the CEO, chairman, owner of the out and out, outright owner. Wow. My publishers. And we got chatting. He was about to board a train to um, to Scotland. Um, and so I said, well, so he said, I've got nothing to read. Can you send me a copy of the book? So I sent it to him. Six hours later, he got off the train in Berwick-on-Tweed and phoned me up and said, that's really, really good. Could you send me, have you got anything more? Um, because I'm quite interested in publishing this. Wow. And that was that. Oh, my goodness. So having completely given up, something fell in my lap and I, and I grabbed it. That, that's amazing. So you, you've, from that to now you're about to finish book four and then there's book five. Six, seven, eight. I've, I've got an eight book deal with Elliot and Thompson. So I was going to say, well, in, where, where do you want to be in five years' time? But <laughs> that's just more of the same then, presumably. Yeah, I would hope in five years. Where are we? Book four coming out 2020. So that means book eight coming out 2024. Uh, 20, sorry, 2025, because it's 2021 now, isn't it? Oh, that year has just disappeared. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, in five years, I'll hopefully be producing book nine, um, which will be the first book in whatever my next deal is. And I would very much hope that that is still with Elliot and Thompson. I've been very, very lucky. I'm not just saying this because this is for public consumption. I've been incredibly lucky. I am their only thriller writer. Um, they do very, very well with with nonfiction books and with a lot of yeah, they're a really they're a really successful publishers, but in a different world. And in a you know, for the kind of books that don't have big marketing budgets ever, um, and and don't require a huge push. And mm. so all of those resources for those for that push are kind of put onto me. And so my first book was in the Zoeville Book Club, and my second book was in the Richard and Judy Book Club, and my third book came out in the second week of the of a national lockdown when we all thought we were in Stephen King's The Stand. Yeah. And so no one bought it because no one knew it existed. So it's been a bit of a bit of a knockback on that one, but uh, we're hoping we can do something about that uh, in in due course, you know, rebranding and and doing what needs to be done for that because who can help that no one can help that uh but they've been incredible and their reaction to the to the to the kind of negativity of what happened with power play because it's no one's fault i mean who knows it's the world we're living in and mm. although there are a lot of books sold in in lockdown they weren't sold in the first few weeks mm. and so those yeah. of us who came out in the first few weeks came out to a world of nothing and um and so, yeah, their, their, their reaction to that, the way they've the, the way they've dealt with that, the way they're pushing the fourth book and everything about it is amazing. So I'm very, very lucky. And they also, they, they work very closely with Simon & Schuster and Simon & Schuster do all their sales. So I have the advantage of, a, of basically the Simon & Schuster sales team behind me, which is second to none. Uh, and then in every other way, the absolute focus of a publisher. So I'm incredibly lucky. Well, and we're lucky to have your books. Um, I just look forward to hearing about the next one when it comes out and following your progress. Tony Kent, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Deliver. It's really nice to talk to you. Wow. Well, that was very interesting, wasn't it? I think if I ever need a criminal barrister, Tony Kent, Tony Wyatt will be the first one that I call. It sounds really impressive. Obviously, I hope I never need a criminal barrister, but uh, there we go. 
There we go. Uh, looking forward to his next book. So from one good book to another one. That Night by Gillian McAllister. We uh, we all love Gillian McAllister. I certainly I've loved all her books today. Been really good psychological thrillers primarily. I, yeah, just good grip lit as I would call it. Um, and this book is called That Night. And it comes out on Thursday of this week. So that's very exciting. And let me tell you about it. Here's the blurb. During a family holiday in Italy, you get an urgent call from your sister. There's been an accident. She hit a man with her car and he's dead. She's overcome with terror, fearing years in a foreign jail away from her child. She asks for your help. It wasn't her fault. Not really. She'd cover for you. So will you do the same for her? But when the police come calling... The lies start and you each begin to doubt your trust in one another. What really happened that night? Who is lying to who? Who will be the first to crack? Um, let's go for the first sentence, shall we? Hang on, let's just find it. The first sentence. Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is a good one. And this is actually part of the prologue. Help me. Please help me. I say into the phone. Ah, that's a good one, isn't it? Great opening line. I thought it was a really good book. Gillian just continues to deliver and deliver. Um, did I prefer her previous book ever so slightly? Maybe by a smidgen. But that's just because it was, you know, it was such an incredible book. But you can't go wrong with this. Um, it's a good story. It had the twists and turns that I would expect. And it had the sort of the reveal that, that you think, oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. And you just know that you're in very um, capable hands. She's a, just an author that continuously delivers. And she works so hard. My goodness. That girl is writing late into the night and working very hard. So, yeah, Gillian McAllister, that night. Great read. There you go. That's all I need to say. It's simple. Great read. Um, and if you're interested in hearing about Gillian, uh, then you can go back and there's a, an episode with Gillian where we talked about her previous book, How to Disappear. So there we go. Two great books. Now I need to take you on to A Week in December by Sebastian Folks. Now, this actually came out in 2010, would you believe? So I know some people have asked for books that are have been around for a while, so it's easy to get hold of. And I think this one really um, would offer for that and it's it's great I actually listened to it on audiobook from the library um, and I'm just so glad I did because anyway okay here's the blurb a powerful contemporary novel set in London from a master of literary fiction that's not really telling you anything about it is it that's just that's just marketing blurb anyway here's the real blurb blurb um, London the week before Christmas 2007 over seven days, we follow the lives of seven major characters, a hedge fund manager trying to bring off the biggest trade of his career, a professional footballer recently arrived from Poland, a young lawyer with little work and too much time to speculate, a student who's been led astray by Islamic theory, a hack book reviewer, a schoolboy hooked on skunk and reality TV and a tube train driver whose circle line trains join these and countless other lives together in a daily loop. With daring skill, the novel pieces together the complex patterns and crossings of modern urban life. Greed, the dehumanising effects of the electronic age and the fragmentation of society are some of the themes dealt with in this savagely humorous book. The writing on the wall appears in letters ten feet high, but the characters refuse to see it and party on as though tomorrow is a dream. 
Sebastian Folks probes not only the self-deceptions of this intensely realised group of people, but their hopes and loves as well. As the novel moves to its gripping climax, they are forced one by one to confront the true nature of the world they inhabit. And even though I listen to this on audiobook, I'm just trying to get um, the first the first sentence, if I can. I don't think I can. No, that's a shame. I can't. Oh, well, I failed there. Um, right. What did I think? I thought it was absolutely excellent. From the blurb that I've just read out, it sounds like it's an incredibly confusing book and one that you have to focus on and concentrate and where you need to be making notes as you go along about each character. I didn't have to do that. I listened to the audiobook and trust me, if I'm listening to an audiobook and it, it's overly complex, I'm going to get more easily lost than if I was actually reading it. Um, but I didn't get that at all. And I would say it's down obviously to a book that's exquisitely written, but also the narration is, is top class as well. I thought it was a great read. It's it's ironic, it's sarcastic, but it's hard hitting. It's not laugh a minute. Again, reading that blurb, it sounds like, you know, you're going to have to hold your rib cage while, you, while you're reading it. And I don't think it's that at all. It's sad and harrowing and all sorts in places. Um, but I just liked it. It was pithy. It was relevant. And uh, and, and it's it's a great story by a great storyteller. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And I need to start re going back and, and reading more of his. Um, I don't know if you've read more of his. I mean, obviously, Birdsong is the major one that I've read, but there's so many others. So anyway, there we go. That's Sebastian Folks, A Week in December. And that was actually published in 2010. Now, another book that's published this week on Thursday is called Everything Happens for a Reason. And it's written by Katie Allen. Um, and this is... Let's do the blurb before I tell you what I think. Mum-to-be Rachel did everything right, but it all went wrong. Her son Luke was stillborn and she finds herself on maternity leave without a baby, trying to make sense of her loss. When a misguided well-wisher tells her that everything happens for a reason, she becomes obsessed with finding that reason. Driven by grief and convinced that she is somehow to blame, she remembers that on the day she discovered her pregnancy, she'd stopped a man from jumping in front of a train. And now she's certain that saving his life cost her the life of her son. Desperate to find him, she enlists an unlikely ally in Lola, an underground worker, and Lola's seven-year-old daughter, Josephine, and eventually tracks him down with completely unexpected results. Um, it, it's a great book. It's a super read. It's very interesting. It really makes you think, yes, this book is going to make you weep and wail, um, but also it's going to cleanse you and just refresh you I don't know it's a, it's a, it's one of those books where you know you know you're in safe hands and you know it's not that it's going to be all right at the end but you you might be traumatized for some of the journey because this character's gone through such an awful thing um but you know that there's going to be some progress and although you meet her at this awful time in her life that these moments don't have to define your whole life, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, deeply memorable, I would say. And uh, yeah, really good book. And it's published. Uh, it's published by Arenda Books, who usually when I read an Arenda book, I am horrified, scared, shocked. You know, they're sort of crime thrillers. Um, and this is such a different tone. It's lovely to see 
um, a publisher just choosing books because they're well written rather than falling within a, a particular genre. So, yeah, bravo to Render Books for that. So, yeah, that that was a great one. And that is out this Thursday as well. So just to recap, we've done four books. So we've done Killer Intent by Tony Kent. And that was out actually in December 2017. Um, Gillian McAllister's That Night, which is out this Thursday, the 10th of June. Sebastian Folk's A Week in December, which was out in September 2010. And Everything Happens for a Reason by Katie Allen. And that is out this Thursday as well, the 10th of June. So, gosh, quite a few books to to look at and a very interesting author interview. Um, I do enjoy these author interviews. I learn so much every, every every week. So there we go. Anyway, enough about me. Look, you just have a great week and I'll get back to my reading. You get back to your reading and I'll speak to you again very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one ever. See you again soon. 